A man is not a financial plan. That's what today's guest shares. Investing and saving and budgeting does not need to be a big, scary conversation, but it's a conversation that must happen. We must all take control of our financial futures. Our money mindset is just as much a thing as our emotional mindset. Let's change our money story through education and planning and action. You don't always have to give up your morning latte either. The Happy Even After Podcast. The Happy Even After Podcast. Divorce sucks, but it doesn't need to define you. And it doesn't need to be the end of your story. The Happy Even After Podcast. Meet your host, Renee Bauer, an award-winning divorce attorney, peacemaker, author, and founder of The D Course, an online divorce educational program. She's been doing this work for almost two decades, and she is passionate about helping all women make it out the other side. The Happy Even After Podcast. Let's jump in. Hi, welcome back to the Happy Even After podcast. I am here today with Magdalena Jandro to talk about money and planning for the future. Maggie worked on Wall Street at Barclays and JP Morgan and now is a partner at Jandro Wealth Management located in Connecticut. She is frequently featured as an expert in outlets like Forbes, US News, NPR, and Bloomberg, and she regularly is seen on NBC Connecticut News. She considers herself a student loan maven and has dedicated a lot of her work helping women going through divorce to get a handle on their finances so they can live an independent and empowered life. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you, Renee, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. So you and I met outside of the podcast world in a professional setting, and I was always really struck by how passionate you were and inspiring you were about educating women about finances. And that's something that tends to be, you know, sometimes women aren't really mindful about their money or they're not the ones in control of it. And here you are a money person and you're female and it's your mission to help women really take control of that. So where did that all come from? It definitely is my life passion to help women in finance. And it came from two places. The first is my own family. And I think that's pretty true of most people. Our money story comes from our family. My parents are both immigrants from Poland. And so they themselves had to learn to navigate the United States financial system because obviously other countries have different systems. And so I watched them navigate that as I grew up and even at times was involved in helping them understand or translate more complex ideas, financial ideas, since English is their second language. And so I was involved in money conversations from an early age. And I think that that made me more comfortable being able to speak about money. And then in my more adult life, I went to an all-girls high school here in Connecticut. And Thankfully, they promoted financial literacy for women. And now I'm lucky enough to be able to go and give back to that same institution and host my own financial literacy seminar. But one of the seminars stuck out to me because they handed us bumper stickers that stated, a man is not a financial plan. Uh, And I just love that. That gave me permission to think about money, to want to make my own money. 
And, you know, my mom is one of seven siblings and six of them are women and only one brother. And my mom and all of my aunts always reminded me to create my own nest egg, to have my own set of skills, because you don't know what life will throw at you. And maybe you'll find yourself in an unhappy or unhealthy marriage. And you won't need to stay in that because you have your own set of skills and financial well-being to be able to leave a bad situation. Whether it's a marriage or a job, doesn't matter. If you have that nest egg, you can make decisions for yourself. And how amazing that you were actually taught that in school. And I mean, that should be part of every curriculum, not just for for girls, for, for boys too. Just really every student that practical rather than like geometry or something. But <laughs> I mean, how many times do you see that circulating social media? You know, I never learned how to do my taxes in right. school, but I learned trigonometry, right? And that's true. Why don't we have basic financial literacy courses? So that is definitely something that I have been passionate about and try to give back to our community. And so what does someone do who is maybe in their midlife, maybe in their late 30s, early 40s, they've never handled the money in their relationship and now they find themselves in kind of uncharted territory and they have to do that. Where do they even begin? So first and foremost, you have to take stock of all of your finances. So what is actually available to you? If you're single, maybe there's nothing. Maybe you've never had a 401k or you don't have a nest egg. That's a different situation than somebody who's going through a divorce and maybe you're splitting up assets. So first and foremost, I have a checklist that I provide of all of the assets you want to account for. All of the different accounts, the different retirement accounts, investments, savings, and then more tangible assets like a house, for example. Once you have that that's probably a good time to loop in a professional. And someone like me is going to help you organize that and also determine your financial goals. We all have dreams and aspirations. Why not give them a tangible number? If you want a vacation house, great. How much are we willing to pay for it? What year are you going to get it in? If you were to retire by a certain age, wonderful. What do you need to do to get there? And so that's really where looping a professional in is going to help you achieve those long-term financial goals. What if someone is like my age and they haven't started to uh, uh, save for retirement? Is it too late for them? I don't think it's ever too late to save. Certainly, there's a lot of studies out there that say that the earlier you start, the better. And that's true. It's based on something called compounding interest, which is essentially... The example I use is a snowball. So if you think about a snowball, let's say you make it in the palm of your hand and you roll it down a very steep snowy hill, what's going to happen to that snowball? It's going to get bigger, right? Right. More snow is going to pack onto it. You physically are not putting more snow onto the ball, but rather you've given it momentum and over time more snow accumulates and the ball gets bigger. So that's how compounding interest works with your money. You put a little bit in, and over time, you keep the, your, the interest that you earn continues to reinvest in your account so long as you don't take the money out. And it accumulates exponentially over time, just like that snowball. So the earlier you start, the better it is simply because you um, have more time to let that money or snow accumulate. But when you're older, that doesn't mean that you can't start. It's never too late. There's always some money that you could be saving. 
you probably just need to be saving a little bit more as you near retirement if you haven't been saving this entire time. Hmm. And what if someone's afraid of entering the stock market and they're saying, well, it's so volatile and right now it dipped and I don't want to lose everything that I put in there. How do you respond to that? Oh, Renee, that is what I hear all the time. And I think an inherent problem in our society is that there's a lot of jargon in the financial world. It's like speaking a foreign language. And similarly, if I was traveling to Spain and I do not speak Spanish, you know, I would feel maybe a little uneasy to travel without a translator or without understanding at least how to say hello and goodbye, right? And so that is often the reason people are so afraid to invest because the jargon scares them and rightly so. And I think it's particularly problematic for women because the financial world is inherently male, right? There's only about 13% of us financial advisors that are female in this country. And so that jargon has been defined through generations of men and not necessarily passed down to women. So first and foremost, find an advisor that, that you trust. Certainly, you could also learn some of this yourself online, but it can be confusing. So a good advisor is going to provide you with education. They're not going to use jargon and they're going to make you comfortable with the stock or bond market or investing in general. The second thing you want to do is take what's called a risk tolerance questionnaire. So the one we use is an online tool and we actually show you how your portfolio would have performed in 2008, how it would have performed in a really good market like 2013. And we gauge your emotional comfort level. All stocks is not necessarily right for somebody, especially somebody who's never invested before. That could be really scary. So then you work to create a portfolio, a nice mix of different asset classes, which is different types of investments that reflect your risk tolerance. So some people can be more aggressive, others more conservative, and others in between. Okay. And so if someone is going through a divorce and they're getting a lump sum, maybe it's from a buyout on the house. And let's just say they have a hundred thousand dollars and their inclination is to put it in the savings account because then they have access to it. Would you advise them that that's the best thing to do with that money? So every person's financial situation is going to be unique. So we really need to assess what is that person's cash flow? What is their current cash needs? What are their income? But the one hesitation I have in general with just putting money into a savings account, especially if that money is meant to last you for the long term or meant to be used in retirement, is this concept of inflation. So Renee, I'm going to ask you a little question. It's not a trick question. (laughs) Um, But do you know in 1960 how much a a, a single serving bottle of Coca-Cola cost? Oh, Probably 10 cents. Very close. It actually was 5 cents, right? Okay. And so not a trick question, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) So it was 5 cents. And today, a single serving can of Coke from a vending machine is about $1.50 or $2. Mm -hmm. So you can see in the course of 50 years how goods and services get more expensive over time. That's part one of inflation. Part two of inflation is that the power your money has to purchase those goods and services decreases over time. So today, a nickel is essentially worthless. I looked it up and you can't even buy a stick of gum with a nickel. So it's not out of the question 
to believe that $2, which today buys you a can of Coke, might be worthless on its own in 50 years. Mm. So when we think about long-term savings, like retirement, for example, putting that money into a traditional savings account, your money is maybe getting less than 1% interest, right? The stock market over a course of of time, over a 50-year time period, has returned on average 9.5%. Now, while past performance doesn't indicate future performance, it is a reasonable thing to believe that over time, your investments should go up based on the stock market. So again, inflation goes about 25 to 3% right now on average for the last 50 years. So you need your money growing faster than that rate. And that's why investing is so important. So if, you're, if your money in a savings is the snowball that you talked about, it's on a flat surface. It's not exactly. rolling anywhere. I love that analogy. It's on a flat <laughs> Exactly. And you need to get it on a hill, which is investing. (laughs) Um, And what about having an emergency fund? How much do you usually recommend that someone does have of accessible cash? So at least six months of necessary living expenses. So a budget is a great place to start to determine what that is. Because while I love getting my nails done, in times of trouble, that is not a necessary expense, right? So I'm talking about debt payments, mortgage or rent payments, food, and your basic living. And so you should have about six months in that emergency fund, and that should not be invested. That should be in that savings account you mentioned. However, it again depends on your situation. If you are anxious that you might lose your job, a year's worth of uh, living expenses, probably more prudent. Today, I was on another uh, uh, call and somebody asked me if two years is prudent. Again, I think it depends on your personal situation. What are your other sources of income that are coming in? Are you concerned about not being able to make payments or concerned about your job? Those are all considerations. So you at least want six months, but maybe even a little bit more. We'll be back just after this message. If you are feeling confused and overwhelmed by the divorce process, the D course can help. This video course will educate and empower you to make the best decisions for your future. Taught by an experienced divorce attorney, you will learn everything you need to move forward into your next chapter. Head on over to www.thedecourse.com for more information. You do not have to do this alone. How do you even create a budget? Because most people don't have one. And you know, once you sit down and start looking at your credit card statements or bank statements and actually seeing what you're spending money on, you're, you're kind of like, you know, <laughs> you don't want to look at it. So like yeah. where do you go to create a like a reasonable budget that allows you to still live and maybe like have an iced coffee now and then. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I know the whole latte, you know, <laughs> don't have a coffee and you'll be a millionaire. You know, that's not necessarily true. But what I remind people is that we all have limited resources, right? And so sometimes it's a budget issue, but also sometimes it's a cash flow issue. So if you find that you've truly cut everything and you're still not able to save, it's time to reassess your cash flow. Maybe you get a side hustle. Maybe you get another job. Maybe you go and ask for that raise. Sometimes it's not a budget issue. 
And I just want to make that clear because it's, it's not always that you know, you're a failure at your budget. But for most of us, I would say it is a budgeting issue. We live beyond our means to keep up with the Joneses, right? And I always, you know, it's always surprising. Sometimes the person that has the most plain clothes and drives the most run-of-the-mill car is actually the millionaire. You know, I, I think they said that Mike Zuckerberg of Facebook drove a really basic car even as he became, you know, a millionaire. Same thing with uh, Jeff Bezos, very basic cars. Um, and they were living within their means. I always say that you could have a million dollars, but if you spend a million and one, you're not a millionaire, you're broke, right? <laughs> so the most basic way to create a budget is first start with a budget worksheet. Obviously, you can email me um, and I'll send you ours, but also there's plenty of templates online. There's free templates you could download in Excel and complete that with where you think your spending is. But then you have to take it the next level, which is you need to look at your past spending habits. So download, if you use a debit or credit card statement, download all of those statements, put them into an Excel and categorize or do it by hand and paper and categorize each spending category. Because then you'll see exactly where your money's going. I think mindfulness is something that everyone keeps talking about, right? Being mindful about your emotions, mindful about your eating. But we need to be mindful about our spending. Because I guarantee you when you do that exercise, you're going to notice that you don't even realize how much you are spending on that iced coffee, for example. Right. Or out, right? And that's okay if you want your money to be going there but at least you're making an active choice to put your money there. That's what we want to be doing. So if getting a nice coffee every day is what makes you happy, keep doing it. But I'm sure there's something in your budget that isn't giving you that satisfaction that you're spending money on without even realizing it. Oh, interesting. And you know, this is the perfect time to bring up the house in a divorce because they're often, it's such an emotional attachment to the house. And, you know, one of the conversations I always have with clients is maybe you don't want the house and let's look at it from a practical standpoint and not an emotional one. And so what can you talk about it as to whether it's smart to keep the house, not keep the house? Like, how does someone assess that? Renee, you know, as much as I do, that is one of the hardest conversations to have with a client going through a divorce. The house typically represents a lot of emotions. So this is really where I also like to bring in a a therapist because they can work through why it's actually that you want to keep the house. You know, someone once said to me, well, it represents security. You know, I love that I have communal space. I know my neighbors, you know, it's it's a gated community. Okay, well, are there other places that you can get or less money, maybe a condo in a gated community. For others, it represents, well, my kids, my kids grew up here. Well, one, we have to remember that kids leave the nest at some point regardless, right? And two, you know, kids are quite resilient and maybe it, this could be having an open conversation with kids, whether they really want that house. Maybe they're excited to move somewhere else, right? We can't put our emotions on them. So first and foremost, we need to understand what does the house represent and can you get that elsewhere? Because a house is a lot of money. And typically when a couple is divorcing, often there's either one spouse that has made a significant amount of money that could keep up all of the household. You no longer have all of that support of that spouse or it's a two income household. So together they were able to afford something 
far beyond their individual budgets, right? So you might not be living within your means. I mean, that's first and foremost the problem. The second is it's not just the monthly mortgage payment. We all know that houses always come with additional problems, right? The water boiler goes, the roof needs to be fixed. You need also an emergency house fund to be able to not take out debt to make those repairs. And then lastly, a lot of people think of a house as an investment, and we really need to think about it if it's the right investment for you, right? Are your other assets diversified or is the house the only investment you have? Because a con of your house being your only investment is that it's illiquid. So liquidity is how easy we're able to sell our assets and then take the cash for it. And a house is illiquid because it typically takes several months and maybe even a year to be able to sell that asset and get the cash for it. Obviously, it depends on what you're invested in in the stock market, but many, many, many stocks, mutual funds, ETFs are very liquid. You could sell it and get the cash within one or three days. There's also taxes to consider. So, I mean, I'm just skimming the surface. There's a lot of things you should consider. Well, what about someone who has a house and there is some equity in the house and maybe they have an equity line? And what about using the equity for things such as a child's wedding or uh, college tuition? Is that something that's advisable or not? You know, it's, I've seen it done as well. And right now we're in a low interest environment. And so typically if you've refinanced your mortgage, you probably have a really low single digit interest rate, three or 4%. And often that is more favorable than some of the other loans out there, including student loans, right? Uh, Student loans are typically, I've seen anywhere from 6% all the way to double digits. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to use that home equity line to pay for certain things. But we also need to take a step back and make sure that once you've paid for that, how is that going to increase your monthly payment? And is that something that's reasonable for you to pay? Is it within your budget? And is it something you'll be able to pay off in the relatively shorter term, right? A lot of people give up saving for their retirement in order to pay for that wedding or in order to pay for college. And I really caution you against that because you can borrow for basically anything in life, including college, including a wedding, but you can't borrow for retirement. There's no retirement loan out there for you. And we can all say that we want to work, we love our jobs, we want to work forever, but your body might physically not allow you to do that, right? And so keep that in mind as you make decisions about using a home equity line of credit or stopping payments to your retirement accounts in order to make these other payments. Because in the end, who's going to take care of you, right? And I and most children of adults that I speak to would prefer to make payments on their own student loans because that's a finite number than have to take care of mom and dad in retirement because who knows how long mom and dad are going to live. Right. <laughs> so a retirement plan is not living with your children then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't tell you how many people say like, oh, my kid will take care of me. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that about that? You know, or are you willing to move to California? You know, so... Right. Yeah, it's not a retirement plan. And so you're you're called a college maven. So what's your recommendation for saving for kids? Should we be doing that now? And what if our budget is already stretched? Is it worth putting money somewhere and, and in what 
kind of vehicle do we do that? Yeah, so the most common vehicle and and probably the most flexible one is what's called the 529 plan. It's a college savings plan. Every state has one, and it's a common misconception that you have to use your individual states, right? So in Connecticut, you have the CHET plan, but you don't have to use a CHET plan. You can go to any other state. Also, that college savings plan can be used at any college that's qualified, right? And there's a very extensive list. So again, it's not like you're using the CHET plan and your child has to go to school in Connecticut. Mm. So really flexible, which is one. Two, there's some tax benefit to using your in-state plan. Every state has a different benefit. Here in Connecticut, if you're filing your taxes jointly, you can get up to a 5,000 state tax deduction. And if you file... That's single. And if you file jointly, you can get up to 10000 So there's a tax benefit. The money grows tax-free. And so long as it's used on qualified education expenses, it's withdrawn tax-free. And those expenses include tuition, books, room and board, and so on and so forth. Furthermore, now the law has been extended and the 529 plans can also be used up to $10,000 a year on K-12 through private school education. And lastly, you as the parent or grandparent retain ownership of the account. So if your child or grandchild or niece or nephew decides not to go to higher education, because it's not just college, it can be technical school, culinary school, so on and so forth, you can actually change the beneficiary of that account and provide it to another family member. So it's a wonderful tool. But to answer your second question, what if your budget doesn't allow it? few things. One, if you open it when your child is just born or your grandchild's just born, you'd be surprised that a little can go a long way because of compounding interest that we talked about earlier. So they have 18 years before they start using that money, right? And a little can go a long way. The second thing is, is there's always a fear that it's going to impact financial aid. But actually, if a parent opens this sort of account for their kid, it is the least impact on financial aid. So the good news is, is even if you can't pay for the entire college to the savings, you've done your best based on your budget, at least it will be helpful to your child in certain ways. And then ideally, they can get some financial aid or scholarships or even take out some student loans to be able to make up the difference. And to add to that, this is a conversation that should be discussed during your divorce as well. There should be provisions in your agreement that talk about college and talk about the 529 if there's something set up and how tuition is paid for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, if not, unfortunately, I've seen it get ugly where someone was expecting the higher income earner to pay for college and that was never decided on. And unfortunately, it becomes more expensive because you typically go back to court and amend your divorce decree. Right. And so some final words, do you have any tips for someone who's listening to this on what they can do today to start really gaining control of their financial future? Yes. Just start. It sounds simple, but I think so many people get afraid and they're so nervous about asking a stupid question or the wrong question, don't be. You're not alone. Most people don't understand this stuff, which is why I have a job. Reach out to me, reach out to another advisor that you might that you trust or know and start asking your questions. 
Many advisors, myself included, have a ton of free resources available for you, including a money story questionnaire so you can understand why you make the decisions around money you do. We have budgets available for you. And we'll even do a free risk tolerance assessment to understand if you're invested the appropriate way. So there's a lot of free resources out there. There's a lot of great social media accounts to follow. So just start. Don't put your head in the sand. That's great advice. Where can we find you? How can we follow you and get in touch with you? Absolutely. So we are on all social media and it's at Jondra Wealth. So that's J-O-H-N-D-R-O-W Wealth, two W's. Our website is jondrawealth.com. And you could email me, which is Maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E at jondrawealth.com. Pretty easy to remember. And I'll put all of that in the show notes as well. So Maggie, thank you so much for just educating. I mean, this was a great episode and it kind of just skimmed the surface of the conversation, but it was so helpful. So thank you. And now I'm going to go get my iced coffee. It's part of my budget. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Renee. And I can't wait to join you for that iced coffee. (laughs) All right. Thank you. That's a wrap. Link up with us at MsReneeBauer.com. Remember to rate and review and share with anyone you think might find this episode helpful. You can change your story and live happy even after.